Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. And any Chelsea fans listening, I'm not saying our new Patreon service is good, but if enough of you sign up today, producer guy can see to it that you actually beat West Brom 4-0 on Saturday. Now, guy, <laughs> guy said I had to big up the Patreon thing, Kieran. Do you think I may have gone over the top a little bit there? No, no, I think that that's that's pitched about right. Good, yeah, it's it's brilliant. I'm really I'm really growing it's growing on me. Uh, the rest of you, don't worry. The price of football will always be free to air, which means you can all enjoy some very interesting questions today. Starting, they asked. There's some very interesting questions today. It took me about two and a half hours writing the script yesterday. <laughs> I see, see if I was if I was less professional, I'd just bring the laptop out and read off that. But you know. Um, all our customers deserve more than that, Kieran. Our first question comes from, Kieran, Michael Short. Happy Easter, by the way. Old chap, it's Sunday, isn't it? So we might as well acknowledge that. Happy Easter. It is. You. It is always a yeah. special time. As as Manchester University's 1981 Cadbury Cream Egg Eating Champion, I always look forward to this time of year. Well, really, I, I wasn't expecting that as, a, as an outcome of a, a, a half-forgotten Happy Easter, which I should have said at the start. <laughs> how, how many Cadbury Cream Eggs did you eat? It was. We had to eat a dozen in in as, as quickly as possible, and I won. I, I'd been practicing. Of course, um, you had. Of course, uh, you had. But yeah, the trouble was, it was sort of done. Uh, it was sort of done mid afternoon, and in the evening, I went along to see the Angelic Upstarts play at a gig, and and that was not a good combination. I I can imagine that was the yeah. I remember the I remember reading about that in Enemy the night the. <laughs> Lead singer of the Angelic Upstarts got covered in chocolatey, creamy. Yeah. Our first question, apologies for keeping Michael short waiting because he's asked our first question. Uh, Michael says, we saw the big three authorities of English football, the FA, the Premier League and the EFL, in front of governing government questioning recently, even, and you, Kieran. Um, but Michael wants to know, what does the independent football ombudsman actually do in the world of football regulation in England? And do they operate only outside the jurisdiction of those three authorities? Well, the, the independent ombudsman is uh, part of the, the customer relations uh, element of football. It's effectively funded by the FA, the Premier League and the EFL. And its aim is to deal with um, customer issues, is the official word, uh, in respect of complaints from either individuals or groups. Now, all clubs are supposed to have um, a, a fans charter, which sets out the uh, complaints procedure if you have a dispute with the club. And in theory, all disputes should be resolved within six weeks, Come to a you know come to some form of uh, solution and move on. Now, if that doesn't arise, then the uh, either the individual fan or the group of fans who are unhappy about a particular issue, they can apply to the uh, independent ombudsman as sort of a uh, as a sort of an ACAS. Um, and, and this is to, to to prevent things going down the legal route. It, it's a bit like some of the. The, the procedures that the, the football authorities themselves have in terms of sports resolutions, which is the sort of the legal um, uh, diversion to, 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 to prevent things ending up in court. Um, and then things are supposed to progress from that. So it's, it's actually been running since 2007. Um, until, um, until recently, I, I was unaware of its existence, and I think most fans are. 
Um, it's uh, it's sort of got three people who are the the main committee, and then it takes advice from around about a dozen about a dozen other uh, people with professional backgrounds, ranging from lawyers to referees. Yeah, the only time I'd ever heard of this, Kieran, and and you and I are both intelligent people and we're immersed in the world of football. And if you and I hadn't heard of this, I think it was a story we had about Gillingham a few weeks ago on the pod. It was the first time I'd heard there was an independent ombudsman, ombudsperson, as it probably should be these days. But that means that I'm guessing a lot of football fans don't know the ombudsman exists, so therefore it's up to the club I presume legally, to tell people that there is this next level of of recourse, of challenge, and I'm guessing some clubs don't do that. Um, I, I could, it could be. I mean, you, know, you would hope that as part of the charter that clubs are supposed to have, that this would be um, explicit in the, in the communication when a complaint comes in. Uh, I mean, to, to give credit to most clubs, when there are genuine complaints, they, they do go through due process and... Mm. You know, no, ultimately, you know, football clubs do have a business element to them, and it and it does no business any favors to be upsetting uh, upsetting fans or customers, however you want to refer to them. So it, it's in the club's interest to to resolve these things to everybody's satisfaction. Yeah, you know, point scoring against fans isn't going to help. I mean, it has to be said though that some fans probably don't help themselves with the pettiness of the the reasons uh, you know, for their complaints. That's true. Yeah, let's let's stick to fans rather than customers. And to well, be fair, that's my view too. Yeah, yep. To be fair, the only way to bring it to the attention of most fans would be to put it at eye level in a gent's toilet. To be perfectly honest, but um, Nigel Phillips has raised an issue that has, I think, slightly concerned football fans since Americans started investing in our game. And I'm actually surprised this hasn't occurred before on the pod because it's a good question. And Nigel says, with the latest investment coming into Burnley. This means seven Premier League clubs now have US owners. So Nigel says, can you see the day when clubs vote with some sort of national interest, especially around the closed shop, no relegation model with which US sports owners are so familiar? Voting in the Premier League is carried out on a 14-6 basis, as we regularly say. So there's still some way to go. But is something like this possible? My mate Gaz thinks it's inevitable, but he has been saying that since 1993. (laughs) Uh, The Americans have taken over. They'll take over, Kev, one day. There'll be no relegation. The Americans will take over. But that could happen. I mean, with that straightforward 14-6 thing, that, there's no reason to think that couldn't happen, is it? Well, there is an existing agreement with the EFL with regards to issues of promotion and relegation. So oh, okay. that would have to be dealt with as well. So the, the, the Premier League could not make unilateral decisions. And also... We do have the Football Association with its golden share, i.e. a power of veto, if it ah, thinks right. that decisions oh, are made in the Premier League that um, are not in the interests of the game. Now, when we go back to Project Big Picture, um, one of the areas that seem to be in it, that the, uh, the, the brains behind Project Big Picture were, were very keen to give a gift of around about £100 million to the Football Association, and um, I think that came in in conjunction with the uh, with the Football Association giving up its power of veto. Um, so, uh, you know, okay. re- read into that what you may. Um, g- going back to sort of Nigel's 
main concern in, in terms of the, the growth of US owners. The reason why they are so keen to come into the game is they still see the Premier League as being relatively cheap. If you, if you want to buy an NFL or um, an NBA franchise, you're talking two to two and a half billion dollars. Now, so yeah, we're talking there, um, you, know, you, you could buy Liverpool for less than that. Um, right, right. And, you, and you'd only get sort of you know, a bog standard uh, franchise. If you want to um, buy an, an MLS club, you know, the, the, the US Soccer League, um, what they do is they ask for an, an expansion fee. So at present, I think there's there's 32 clubs. If you want to take that up to, to 33 or 34, then you've got to go and pay effectively an entry fee to, to bring uh, football to that particular city. And, and the going rate for those is now around about $350 million. Now, that's, that's less than, uh, sorry, that's more than, it, than, than ALK paid to acquire Burnley. Right. Who were already in the Premier League and already right, had right. a fan base and already had the you know, all all the benefits. So U.S. owners do think that there are bargains to be had um, in in English football. The downside, as they see it, is they've got no concept of of relegation as such. Yeah, they, yeah. they it's it's not part of the culture over there. Um, and and as as we know, you know the the relegation scrap is is just as exciting. In fact, this season potentially more exciting than than who's going to win the Premier League. You know, Manchester City are, are going to win it. Clearly, Liverpool won it last season by, by a canter uh, and so on. So now, very much the focus is on relegation. And that does have an impact upon the crowds and interest. And it, it helps to generate interest for TV audiences and things of that nature. So um, I, I think there is, uh, there is the potential for more US ownership. Um, in the Premier League, that there's no doubt about that, and and I'm aware of um, some sharks circling some clubs as we speak. I'd rather not go into the clubs involved, hmm. um, but uh, even if it does get to that position of fourteen to six, um, if the Premier League votes for it, this is where we hope that uh, a the EFL and and I'm sure that they will. They will say, well, hold on, we've got an existing agreement. Um, yeah, that could involve a bit of a legal battle, but the the football association, which ultimately is supposed to stand up for the best interests of English football, should then use its veto powers. Yeah, two two things, guys. I think how exciting you find the relegation battle depends on how close you are to it. Essentially, <laughs> true. I'm I'm finding it mildly exciting. I should think you're finding it less exciting. And Newcastle and Fulham fans are not finding it exciting in any way, shape, or form. But if I, I I hear what you say about this FA Golden Share thing, and I hear what you say about them acting in the interests of English football, and I raise my eyebrows slightly when you say it. But if, as we have, we've been talking quite a lot recently about so-called top six clubs, not just in England, but in, in Europe, to be fair, but so-called top six clubs, greedy six clubs, whatever we call them, finding ways to make sure they qualify for the Champions League, no matter where they finish in the league. It's it's not beyond the realms of possibility for them to suddenly go, hang on a second, if there's enough of us owning clubs in the Premier League, we can we can look at getting rid of this pesky relegation thing, can't we? Oh, there, there is no doubt about it. I mean, part of Project Big Picture was that only two clubs were going to be um, definitely relegated from the Premier League and the side finishing third bottom would go into the playoffs with the clubs um, finishing uh, third, fourth and fifth in the championship. So 
uh, yeah, the direction of travel is already very clear as to what the um, what the G six want. Mm. Now, our next question comes from Martin Ward, and I, I have to say, Kieran, I like the sound of Martin Ward. He sounds like a cheery, optimistic sort of chap. He sounds like the sort of chap. When this is all over, we will add to the list of people that we're going to have pints with in various parts of the country, and currently it's about twenty seven hundred. Um, Martin says. It's amazing, and I'm quoting here, it's amazing how easy it is to get sucked into the nerdy details of football finance. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you there, Martin. I was about to say, I can think of one person that's not convinced by that. I gave some thought to the matter when I was writing my notes, and I'm going to disagree with you there, Martin. Let's get that out of the way before we have our pints. But I realised, says Martin, that I was actually interested to find out last week that many football clubs are not required to have audits of their accounts. And I realised, Martin, that I was actually interested to find out last week. We'd asked that audit question before, it turns out. And Have still, we? yeah, and still, still produce a guy who gets five star reviews. Um, <laughs> and now, uh, says Martin, I wondered whether the ownership model makes a difference. Um, my own club, Chesterfield, are now owned by Chesterfield FC Community Trust and have loans from local authorities. Can I assume? as they are a registered charity, that an audit will be required by the Charity Commission, at least, or will that only apply to the charitable aspects? Now, it's an interesting question, but also because Chesterfield are a club that you say have always done things well when it comes to presenting accounts, haven't you? Yeah, their their accounts are uh, the most detailed of, of any that I've seen, and, and hats off to Chesterfield for that. And I hope that the... Uh, the move towards uh, a charitable ownership model uh, continues that that particular form of disclosure. Um, in in respect of a charity, um, if, uh, if if total revenues are more than one million pounds, then it must have an audit. Now that compares to a limited company where your turnover has to be ten point eight million pounds. So yes, uh, Chesterfield will have to have an audit. Um, and, and fair play to them, and, and I think it is absolutely essential. I think for, for for charities to go down this particular route if they want to have credibility, because you know you, you do see crowdfunding things and uh, of of that nature where people are saying this is all going for a good cause, and people give money, and, and you just want to make sure that that is ending up in, in the in the hands of the, those that need it. But that's a quite an interesting detail as well from Martin. The the audit on on a charity. On Chesterfield, will it will it only apply to the charitable aspects, charitable aspects, or is it impossible to separate those from the the business and football aspects? Um, I think it I think it will be more costly to try to separate the things out than than the cost of the audit. So therefore, it, it would it would make sense just to have the the whole thing audited. And, and as as we said last week, you know the advantage of being an audit is that you're you're less likely to be investigated by HMRC and you're likely to have a better credit rating. So, so you know it could be that you throw this into the the mix as well, and the the benefits of the audit actually outweigh the the additional costs. Mm. Uh, yes, thank you for that question, Martin. And I look forward to that pint we just invited ourselves to. Just, <laughs> just let us know the pub and the time will be there. Just water for Kieran. I don't know why Kieran leaves the house, to be honest. Meal Palmer. Um, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Meal, and I apologise if not. Uh, a lot is made about Barcelona's high wage bill causing financial problems, but La Liga has a salary cap. How are both possible? 
They are also on top of the rich list, bringing in 900 million euros plus each year, and have spent around 70 million euros net in transfers each year. So, with all this, how are they still scrimping and saving pre-COVID? Very good point to me. Was I've never made that connection between the wage bill and the salary cap for Barcelona before. But then, Kieran, that could be because according to a review in the Australian Financial Times, I'm just a stooge. So <laughs> so what do I know? What do, what do I know? I'm just a stooge. You know, and only a stand-up comedian could complain about a review that was in a list of 10 best global podcasts. Yeah, I was thinking that. You sent me that and he said, we're in this list of 10 best global podcasts. Oh, that's great news. Oh, Stooge. I mean, right, okay, fine. <laughs> right. And now, Ali, <laughs> the last thing I heard Ali say was, don't mention that. Just, it's just, They don't mean Stooge like that. Yeah. 14 friends I've got in Australia who all sent me copies of that saying, be a Stooge. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it was meant in the way that, that you ask yeah. the everyman questions and it's your particular skill. Yes. being able to do that, which sets the podcast apart. Yes, I didn't like that bit where it said, it said hopefully, deliberately stupid questions. <laughs> that was the other bit I took exception to. I did lots of, right, okay, let's get Guy to produce the pod then. Why don't they marry Guy if they love the pod so much? <laughs> but, but anyway, that is a good, because I, I generally have never made that connection between uh, La Liga having a salary cap. So how, how, how are Barcelona paying so much money in, in wages? Well, the way that it operates is La Liga set each club a budget, and that budget is based on the club's estimated revenues for the following season. So under normal circumstances, you've got Barcelona earning huge sums of money. You know, the, 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 the kit deals, the, the stadium tours, the fact that they've got a huge stadium itself, the broadcasting rights from Champions League, all the commercial partners – um, and, and effectively, they, they say, well, at the start of the season, this is how much money we anticipate generating uh, in terms of revenue. And then La Liga say, well, on that basis, if you're going to bring in, let's say, 900 million euro this year, your wage bill is going to be set at 750. So that's that's the way that it operates. Um, and when Barcelona did that this season, La Liga says, well, you've got to go and cut your wages. And under normal circumstances, what Barcelona would be forced to do is is to sell players. But the trouble is, it's a really sticky market at present. Right. And what there's, there's, an, there's an outstanding issue in that you might have existing long-term contracts. So, so what do you do if you've got a player um, such as Real Madrid have in, in the shape of Gareth Bale, who's on allegedly you know, 600,000 a week, Wow. And uh, they say, look, Gareth, yeah, we need to get our wage budget down. Uh, would you mind leaving? And he says, uh, well, I've signed a contract. Yeah. I don't want to do that. There's, there's nothing that the club can do. Um, so, it, so it means that they end up uh, yeah, exceeding the budget and they're put under more pressure from La Liga. Now, is, is La Liga going to sanction Barcelona or Real Madrid? No, it's not. So it's really a sort of a direction of travel issue more than anything else. Um, you know, this is what we think you should be trying to do. And um, if you don't, we'll be upset a bit, but we probably won't do anything. That, would they do anything to smaller clubs who breach their regulations? Or is this is literally these are the two most powerful clubs almost in the world, let alone in La Liga, so we're not going near them with a, a barge pole? Um, I, I think, I think they, they will be cautious as to what they would do to other clubs other than, otherwise there would be accusations uh, made um you know there, there could be some sanctions in terms of uh 
yeah, transfer bans and things of that that nature domestically. We, 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 I'm not quite sure. I mean, I have I've looked at the rules and, and they do appear to be a um, quite long winded and b Spanish. So n- neither of which uh, is an area of, of my my uh, my knowledge really. Um, mm. But I, mean, I think the other thing in, in terms of a budget, it, it's a bit like uh, you, know, you or I going to our bank manager. And the bank manager says, well, you know, looking at what you've earned last year and your projection for bookings for you know, work commitments for the next 12 months, this is how much income um, you're, you've got coming in. So therefore, this is the amount of money I recommend that you spend each month. And if you don't do that, well, you know, don't expect me to lend to you. So, so it, it's, it's going it's to be difficult, for the, especially for the smaller clubs, to borrow money if they're exceeding their budgets, because mm. nobody in their right minds is going to lend to them. Uh, again, two things, Kieran. I'm, I'm minded to say that Swiss Ramble would have learnt Spanish. Oh, he does. He, 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 oh, he's learnt these languages, has he? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he, he speaks four languages. Does but, he? You know, he? He is the governor. Uh, you know, he is... Uh, you know, I, am, I am merely the mini-me to his Dr. Evil of football finance, as far as I'm concerned. Kieran, how does that make me feel now? I'm, I'm the stooge to Mini Me now. I'm not even stooge. <laughs> I'm not even Doctor Evil stooge. I'm Mini Me. That's. Um, and secondly, uh, it, COVID is that going to be a get out card for the next five, ten, fifteen years for clubs like Barcelona who are going to say, or Real Madrid who are going to say, well, we made these decisions, we signed these players before the pandemic. You can't possibly hold us to account for breaches of these rules now. I mean, because it seems to me that it is a very easy get-out card in the future, isn't it? Yes. I, I, th- I think until we return to an environment of full attendances at games, then there will be allowances made for contracts signed pre-COVID. Um, when it's, uh, you know, in terms of the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona, what La Liga will be able to do is to say, well, you cannot sign player X. So in terms of, players coming in they they won't be able to sign sign them because they they've got uh, they've got they're spending too much on existing contracts um and whether there will be flexibility there um we'll we'll have to wait and say see because you know Tebas who is effectively the head of the liga he is very political yeah. um and he is the king of whataboutery um the king of spain or what about in whataboutery uh, his obsession with with uh, clubs from other countries um, because he, he's trying to fight for Barcelona and Real Madrid as often as he can. I think even Swiss Ramble would struggle to translate what aboutery into Spanish. <laughs> um, now, Alan Anderson has a, a new and very interesting angle, I think, on our regular talks about club accounts. And Alan says, if League One and Two clubs have not published their financial reports in the past year or two, should they be entitled to any EFL bailout funds? Well, if I was in charge, no, um, but but I'm not. Um, and it, remember, it, it's the clubs that are in charge of the EFL, not the other way around. And I think that's a common misconception. Oh. Um, uh, any any recommendations, any decisions made by the EFL ultimately are on the basis of this has already been approved 
um, in a vote by EFL right. clubs themselves. So yeah, if we if we go back to the the squad salary cap, if we go back to the thirty nine million pound loss allowance uh, for for clubs in the championship, those decisions have all been voted in favour by the EFL clubs themselves. Um, therefore, in respect of the bailout funds, it would require a two thirds majority of clubs to say, well, if you're not published the accounts, you're getting no money. Now, from a perspective of self-interest, some clubs might say, well, you know, we, we don't want to be bullied. We don't want to go. We, we're, we're not being told to publish our accounts by anybody. Uh, it is a legal requirement to do so. But you know, if, if you're Derby County, you just go law schmore. You know, I'm not asked by it. I'll I'll just pay the fine and uh, you know get on with it. And and that's the that that is the attitude of some of the clubs, unfortunately. So yeah, I, I think it is would act as a very good incentive. Um, certainly, if if I was the the Premier League, and remember, it is the Premier League that has given these grants, these these uh, these grants of fifty million pounds to clubs in leagues one and two. Um, I, I would have said as as a condition that uh, the, the clubs would have had to have all of their accounts out for 2019. To be fair to the clubs in Leagues 1 and 2, uh, they, they they have been fine with regards to that. Uh, it tends to be clubs in the Championship who are a bit more uh, awkward when it comes to publication. Ah, I wonder why that might be. Um, <laughs> we, we might, we, actually, we, we might find out in this next question in a roundabout way. Um, and our next question comes from Andrew Storm. Which is a, which is, I'm sure. What a he, name! What a name! I'm sure he's never tired of, of being told what a brilliant name. I was going to ask him if he has any relation to a chap I know called Johnny Storm, but then Ali reminded me that Johnny Storm was a made-up name. Because <laughs> so the chances are that he probably isn't, uh, unless unless Andrew Storm is also related to a chap called Horatio Smith. And let's face it, who wouldn't who wouldn't choose Johnny Storm over Horatio Smith? He doesn't like football. He won't be listening to this. Um, Andrew Storm has asked a, a, a question that I would, I'm would i actually very intrigued about your reply. What triggers an EFL investigation into the finances of a particular club? Now, Kieran, I often worry that it's listening to this pod. I'm worried that the EFL will be at home going, have you heard that Kieran Maguire and his stooge banging on about Derby <laughs> County buying their own ground? We'd better investigate. Cut to us saying our next story is EFL investigating Derby County. Um, apologies to panicking Derby fans who turned on halfway through that sentence. It's not happening, but it's. I think it's a very good question. What do, are there a set of parameters that trigger an investigation, or is it is it simply somebody sidling up to them outside company's house, somebody six foot three, say, sidling up to them outside company's house, saying, "You might like to have a look at these accounts." Um, there's a variety of issues. Uh, my understanding is that uh, listening to this podcast is, in fact, a sackable offence at the EFL. <laughs> so um, I, I don't think it's it's likely to be What, during, during work hours, you mean, or any time? <laughs> oh, any time. I think, I, think a monitor, I think they have to wear a tag. <laughs> he really doesn't like you, does he? No. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by Manscaped, the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels and is now available in the USA, Canada, the UK, Australia, New Zealand and the EU. So we can all be tidy together, Kieran. Yes. And, And did you know that every hour somebody's diagnosed with testicular cancer? So this is a reminder to to all of the men listening to check yourself before you wreck yourself. 
To help reduce that figure, Manscaped has partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society to spread awareness for men's health and early cancer detection as part of their We Save Balls initiative. So whilst you're down there cleaning up your sack, why not go down and give them a little investigation for lumps, changes in size or any pain? And if you feel out of the ordinary, give your doctor a call. You can get 20% off and free shipping with code PRICEOFFOOTBALL at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with code PRICEOFFOOTBALL, all in capitals, at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. That's a very um, British, that's a, that's a really British thing, that is it? Two men laughing about the fact another man doesn't like one of them. <laughs> um. An EFL investigation can can come from a variety of sources. First of all, the clubs have to set send in uh, budgets at the start of each season, um, and this allows the EFL to determine whether or not uh, effectively they got a, yeah they've got the equivalent of a traffic light system. Right. Um, if, if a club's just had two really good financial years and it sends in its budget and everything looks hunky dory, they're probably not going to to do too much. If they are fairly close to the um, to, to the financial fair play limits or profitability and sustainability limits, as I should officially call them, um, then they're going to be possibly monitoring the the club's wage bill on a month by month basis. They can get access to things of that nature. Clearly, they'll be looking at the accounts as well, and and occasionally um, they they might uh, they they might get interested parties writing to them about unusual uh, amortization policies um used by some clubs in the championship with regards to how they how they deal with players um and then even more intriguingly they say at the at the charge in respect of the amortization investigation oh we ignored the letter 4 years ago because it came from a troublemaker oh oh indeed <laughs> oh that's interesting yeah so how does that work? It's like, dear EFL, my friend the Baroness has told me <laughs> signed an interested party. <laughs> that's um, yes. So that, yeah. so that, I, I find that interesting. Good mate. I, I I did write to them about this about three or four years ago, and and then apparently I was I was deemed to. They said, "Oh no, he's a troublemaker." Just threw it in the bin. <laughs> wow, that that's a worrying sign, isn't it? The second most powerful financial football accountant in the world. And and you're deemed a troublemaker. That's that's. I don't think they would do that now. But then you wouldn't you wouldn't grasp people up now, Kieran, would you? You've grown up since then. I, I'm very interested by that because I I thought there would be a, you'd, you'd be outlining a specific set of criteria whereby. Well, I suppose, you know, but for it to be as random as a letter, as well as all these, and I'm also intrigued by this idea of of a budget, and it relates back to the the La Liga salary cap thing because you. Are they taking it on trust? If if each EFL club sends in a projected budget, are any of these budgets then randomly checked at any stage to see whether or not those they stuck to those budgets? Because if if not, then it's very easy for a club to go, well, we're going to be spending 300 million quid this season. How much do we get out of it, basically? Yeah, because, uh, I mean, you've got to give the EFL some credit. You know, sort of, you know, j- joking aside, uh, in terms of my relationship, uh, which is doesn't exist, so there's nothing to joke about. Um, then um, they will have seen the wage cost for the previous season, 
They will see the budget now. Does and and they'll, and they'll ask you know, common sense questions. So does this budget look realistic? Given that we've seen what's happened in terms of contract extensions and transfers in over the course of the season, yeah, you know, they're, they're not mugs. Yeah, you know, they, they are. They, there is a lot of smart people there, um, and therefore they will be monitoring during the course of the season as well. Because you know, based on the budgets, you know, it. it you, you will forecast your, your cash at any one point in time. Now, there's nothing to stop the EFL saying, well, OK, according to your budget, your, your overdraft should be £22 million by the end of March. Uh, could we take a quick look? And if it's, if it's £60 million, they'll say, well, you must have spent more money than you budgeted for. Yeah, because there yeah. is the potential, although I think it would be a nightmare to actually implement, to um, put through sanctions in the season in which the offence is taking place. The, the big fear historically, or the, the big issue historically in respect of breaches of financial fair play, is that clubs do naughty things, get promoted to the um, get promoted to the Premier League. The EFL says, well, look, you've, you've breached the rules. And the clubs turn around and say, well, we're in the Premier League now. And they just start flicking Vs yeah. um, at the EFL and say, well, yeah, it's... Tough, tough luck. You know, we, we, we've been promoted and we're, we're now enjoying because the Premier League and the EFL are independent organisations. So the only thing that the, the Premier League have, have agreed to do is to uh, try to enforce fines, which have been set by the by the EFL. But they would they would not agree to any form of points deduction. Yeah, I should point out for slightly baffled new listeners, which, as I say that, I realise is a tautology. I should point out for slightly baffled people that the chair of the EFL and Kieran do not get on. Not not in a kind of midsummer murders way, where at the start you think, "Oh, these two don't get on," but I bet by the end of it they're really good mates and a great detective pair. Just don't get on, do you, Kieran? Basically, because I think he thinks okay, well, we know he thinks you're a troublemaker who's trying to draw the attention of. Um, Clubs misdemeanors to people as you should. Um, James Beadle is a long suffering Berry fan with a non Berry question, uh, and it relates to a, s- a subject we've already been talking about, which shows that Guy is paying some attention this week. Uh, hypothetically speaking, says James, what would happen if a Premier League top six club got relegated to the Championship? How long could they survive on a second tier budget, and how much would have to be trimmed from the budget in order to survive? And I was trying to think. I'm trying to think the last two big, big, big clubs. I suppose Newcastle. Well, I'm thinking Man United back in the 70s and Tottenham back in the 70s were probably the last time huge clubs got relegated, Kieran. So it is, it is hypothetical, but it's a good question, isn't it? Yeah, and I can remember Chelsea being in, oh, uh, Chelsea, in, yeah, in the yeah. second tier. Yeah. Uh, because I remember when we got relegated in 83, our first home match the following season was uh, was against Chelsea. And, uh, of course, they all come down on the Friday night, and it's a very lively weekend. And, and what the police did, they, they got about 200 Chelsea fans. And, and this, was, this was another time, I think is the official phrase to describe this. Um, and they, they got 200 Chelsea fans, and they locked them um, in, uh, uh, underneath the road that goes by the coast. So there, there's two gates on either side, and there's, there's a walkway. Uh, underneath the the coastal road, and they just got all these Chelsea fans and lobbed them in together. And this was about this was about midnight. So I just hate to think of the smell the following morning. You know, because it's fair to say, you know, 
stuff was consumed. Uh, you know, dr- drinks were drunk. It must have been an absolute nightmare. Um, and then they uh, and, and they proceeded to beat us two one. Kerry Dixon scored twice, and to celebrate, they went and uh, ran on the pitch and <laughs> ripped up the you know, knocked knocked down the the crossbars and, and generally uh, acted like uh, 80s scamps, I think yes. is the official phrase. Can I just say, Kieran, that's a very Sussex response to 200 people being illegally incarcerated in a shed underneath a road in Sussex. The smell, darling, must have been, <laughs> must have been awful. <laughs> so, yeah, to me, it's your store ball. It, um, I don't oh. know, that, that led to quite some response. On, apparently, it's, apparently it's played in the village in Derbyshire as well. Who knew? Who knew that? <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll have to arrange a county, county championship on that basis. Yeah, you say we, Kieran. That's <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there. I'll be there. It's fine. Unfortunately, there's a lockdown at the moment, Kieran, and I'm fairly certain Boris Johnson specifically said Storball will be the last thing that's released <laughs> to the public. But anyway, James Beadle's question, which is an interesting question. I oh think. yes, yeah. So, right. So, so we're back to the G6, and um, what would happen if uh, one of those clubs was relegated? At present, they earn, on average, £350 million more than the other clubs in the Premier League. So if they, if they were to drop down into the, um, in, into the championship, to give some form of context, the, the average wage of a single player uh, of a G6 team is the equivalent of the total TV money earned by EFL championship clubs. So wow. it's it, it's going it would be carnage, utter carnage. I mean presumably most of the higher paid paid players would leave because they they want to pay at the top tier. Um I I, I suspect yeah Manchester United wouldn't wouldn't insult their players by by having relegation clauses. So no, and, and also the players, you know, the likes of Paul Bogba, he says, "Well, I'm not signing one of those. I'm Paul Bogba." So it, it would be a huge financial burden. Um, they, you know, presumably, of course, if they'd been relegated, they wouldn't be in European competition. So they would use the lose the benefits of that. They would lose the benefits of you know 140, 150 million pounds worth of TV money. It could be that uh, there will be clauses in um, front of shirt deals that would mm. kick in and things of this nature. So uh, it, it would be it would be financial Armageddon. Um, you know, Chelsea would be okay because Roman Abramovich would sort of just sell another couple of paintings and yeah. cover those losses. But I think I think for the other clubs, it would be quite an unpleasant experience. But they would still sell out every week. They'd still sell Anfield out and Old Trafford out every week. And I'm sure they would come up with other ways of making money. You know, 60,000 were on loan to the Championship for a season-type T-shirt. So... They'd be right for a season or two, wouldn't they? I mean, for for, for a season or two, yeah, yeah, they'd, they'd be absolutely fine. And remember, the first thing that they would do is, you know, if, if it was Manchester United, well, they've got Marcus Rashford, they've got, uh, yeah, you know, they've got Bruno Fernandez. There would be plenty of clubs interested in buying them who would still pay top dollar. So I, I think for the first couple of seasons, everything's okay. As the parachute payments start to. Uh, uh, taper away then it, it would be more challenging but then yeah that that's the purpose of parachute payments it's to give clubs a breathing space so that they can acclimatize to to life without the benefits of being in the premier league now our next question kieran comes from joshua selig uh who's a long-time listener hello joshua now he has a question 
uh, which relates to Scottish football, which I'm going to ask, but I'm also uh, going to make a note to ask Neil Doncaster about this, because on our next pod we have the uh, I don't like to call him Supremo, but he's the head of the he's the head of Scottish football essentially. Uh, so we're having a Scottish football special on our next pod, and I'm going to put this point to him because I think it's a an interesting one. As Joshua says, with with Brexit and the increasing likelihood that Scottish football could be used as a youth recruitment area by the English Premier League, do you think it's possible that someone could purchase a Scottish club to assist in youth recruitment, such as the City Football Group or Red Bull? And if so, which clubs would make good candidates? Karen, I'm going to suggest you don't answer the second bit of that question to avoid... I'd just say all of them. Every, every Scottish club would be an ideal candidate. Uh, as an angry Scottish fan, revving his motorbike up as we speak. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, but, but I thought but it, through your window there. Yeah, it's close enough. Uh, he's delivering the ball for my stall ball practice this afternoon. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because, again, it, the, the whole City Football Group, Red Bull, is, is a subject that our listeners return to again and again. And they always find different angles for it. But it's clearly something that is bothering football fans, This this whole... Yeah, owning lots of football clubs, and is this is this something that could happen? Do you think? Um, I'm not convinced that Scotland would be an ideal place for a multi-club environment um, on the back of Brexit, and the benefits of owning a club in the EU, if you already own a Premier League club or something of that nature, is that. Um, if if clubs are in the EU, um, a, a Belgian club can sign a player from Italy or Germany who is 16 or 17. Uh, there's a special dispensation for, for EU clubs from FIFA. Now, under normal uh, considerations, um, you cannot sign a player from another country if he is um, uh, under, under the age of 18, which means that it's it restricts the the bigger clubs who who want to you know they they're very good at spotting talent they want to get that talent to the the host club potentially as early as possible and and this now acts as a bit of an anchor from that so therefore if you've got a feeder club in belgium or france the logical thing is you spot somebody really talented in italy at 14 or 15 six or so, and you move him to the the belgian or french club at 16 um, and you can keep him there for a couple of years, turns 18, and he can now go to the mothership in right. the Premier League. So, so that's that's the benefit there. Um, at present, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not getting involved here in uh, Scottish independence issues, at present, uh, Scotland is part of the UK, and therefore it, it is outside of um the the european union now of course that may change at some point in the future but you know we're not we're not privy to that or or uh, particularly connected to it um so the 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 under the under 18s benefit doesn't exist um and then if you were looking and, and I, I will i will not name names uh, for the reasons which you very sensibly brought up brought into consideration um but if i was a uh, if i if i was a leading premier league club i would not want to own um and, and this would potentially result in world war 3 anyway i would not want to own one of those scottish clubs that was regularly competing in europe because uh, uh you know yeah. manchester united drawing celtic if yeah. manchester united owned celtic would cause 
issues in terms of the integrity of the competition and things of that nature. Um, and, and we saw that with uh, you know, RB Leipzig and uh, the, the other uh, was, was one that the one of the other clubs owned uh, who, who said that the RB has nothing to do with Red Bull um, at the time. So um, I think we would have to be looking potentially at those clubs in the Scottish Premiership who um, are less likely to be competing in Europe. Um, and I have written on on my notes, but what about the cold? Um, <laughs> So, you know, if 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 I if if uh, if, if you do have some, if, if you do have a feeder club in Scotland, um, and you're trying to attract players who are you know 16, 17, 18, let's assuming that you know if, if Scotland was outside or was was inside the EU and therefore has the benefits of other EU countries, um, you know, would would you want to move to our growth at the age of sixteen? Because um, I've, I've been invited to our broth um, on, on one of our many invites that we we get on the show, um, and I said, "Oh, really looking forward to that." Um, I'll probably make. I'll probably wait to to one of the games you know, in, in the spring, perhaps uh, before ever making that journey. And they replied, uh, "That won't make any difference in terms of how cold it is." So I, I think that's that's something to, to bear in mind if you if you are thinking of a feeder club in in Scotland. So you were doing really quite well, Kieran, until you upset every Celtic fan in the world by implying that they're a small club that Man United could buy. And now you've dismissed the whole of Scotland as cold. You're you're the one who's going to get the tweets, Kieran, all I'm saying. And I, my, my wife's from Edinburgh, remember? I do remember, yeah, of course I do, yeah. It was South, well, North England, as a lot of Scottish people call it. Um, at, now, so you know, I'm going to see see what I did there, Kieran. I threw myself in front of a speeding train for you, so I get the quiz. <laughs> Thank I you. Also, I also like the fact the way you say you say things so knowledgeably, Kieran, that when you say at present Scotland is part of the UK, I immediately think at present. What does he know? Okay, all right. I'll be, I'll be going into Ali, getting my Easter egg and going, Kieran says it's only at present that Scotland's part of the UK. Oh, what what Easter egg have you got? Ah, well, this, the, I've oh. been dropping heavy hints about this one for quite quite some time, and Ali was furious because she forgot that I've been dropping heavy hints. Mark's, no, I can't say this on air, Kieran, but Mark's, we've had a, a slight issue because it turns out that the, the, Ali loves a dark chocolate mint Easter egg. Right. And oh, so yes. every yeah, year yeah. I, buy, I buy Ali a dark chocolate mint Easter egg and we do a little thing like, I didn't know you like those, darling, and she laughs. <laughs> uh, and I bowled down to the shop that sells the dark chocolate mint Easter eggs only to find uh, it's gone. And it's now a planet organic to rub things, to make things even worse. <laughs> and could I buy in the current circumstance, even in even in Ballam and Clapham, I could not find dark chocolate mint Easter egg. So I had to buy three separate buy- bars of posh mint and then pretend that that's what I was doing all along. Anyway, I've <laughs> I've I've been dropping heavy hints since about November because I'm a sucker for an advertising campaign. I literally, if, if Marks and Spencer's advertised something on telly, no matter what time of night it is, I, I have to find an open Marks and Spencer's. And they've got these blonde Easter eggs. Um, blonde? Blonde Easter eggs, Kieran. Yes, they're they're a, a sort of darker, slightly less sweet white chocolate. I'll tell you what, Kieran. Let's save this discussion for <laughs> yes, the <I'm> Patreons. Sure. <laughs> let's promise the Patreons that they can have an email about Easter eggs. Um, and, and we'll move on to a, a question, a proper accounting question from Reese Carpenter. Again, we've had all the questions this week have been have thrown 
interesting new angles on a lot of subjects that we've talked about before. But Reese Carpenter says there's been some discussion on the podcast recently about clubs using loans with an obligation to buy more often in order to defer costs in future years or into future years, I should say. If it is a certain future obligation, why are clubs allowed to treat this differently to a normal permanent transfer and defer costs in the accounts that would otherwise be incurred straight away? Yeah, I think this is a, from from a nerd's point of view. This this is this is really fascinating, um, and I'm a nerd. Um, so, if the obligation to buy is unconditional, then in my opinion, what we would do is um, we would apply the principle of substance over form. And substance over form says, if it, if it looks like a duck, if it swims like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, and if its name is Donald, you you can't call it a giraffe. Even if it's legally got a birth certificate which says it's a giraffe, um, and and this really upsets lawyers uh, because we say, yeah, what, what's the what's the economic, what's the commercial nature of this transaction? You ignore the legal position. Um, so if it is genuinely unconditional, then I think you would have to recognise the full cost uh, immediately. Ah. Although, uh, yeah, there's one thing which is being ignored here: um, is is the player committed? Oh, to the contract. Yeah. So you could argue that uh, transferring the player's uh, registration, you know, that, that could be more complicated. But um, if we have um, a conditional, and I think this is more likely to be the existence, if you've got a conditional obligation to buy, it's normally limit-linked to something such as promotion. So if we look at the position of uh, Jean-Kevin Agustin, who uh, who went from Leipzig to Leeds United? That was linked to Leeds being promoted to the Premier League by the thirtieth of June, twenty twenty. That was, yes, yes. And, and that's that's still ongoing. Uh, but certainly, I, I think in terms of of Brighton's Brighton loans, uh, Anthony Knockhart to Fulham um, uh, last season, and I think that was a an obligation if Fulham were promoted. So. He was promoted. Then the manager decided he didn't want him, so they loaned him out to somebody else. So, so things can get quite messy right. in respect of those contracts. But uh, in going back to, to Reese's original point, I, I I think you'd have to recognise the full cost because oh. it's it's just a it's to to me you're committed to the to, to paying the player for four years, you know, regardless. Hmm. Interesting. Well done, Reese. Um, on a similar-ish note, Michael Hartley has a question about transfers with an option to buy back. Who, says Michael, does this benefit more, the selling or the buying club? And why not do a long-term loan with an option to buy rather than the transfer buyback option? Um, well, in, in terms of the buyback, I, I think it, it best suits the selling club, um, especially if there is a... Um, special fee built into it which benefits so let let's say that uh yeah brighton sold Tarek. sorry uh, chelsea sold Tarek lamptey to brighton for mm. you know three million pounds last yeah. season yeah um if they have a buyback clause to get him for 20 million pounds for the next two seasons and his market value is 45 you can clearly see that there's a benefit there to chelsea um the trouble is, if if a player wants to go, um, you know, the, he could say, "Well, I'm not particularly bothered about the deal," and it could be that the buying club says, "Well, 
you know, we're not particularly happy about that deal. So we'll wait for his contract to expire at, at the end of June and, and Chelsea will end up getting nothing. So it, it's it, there's got to be benefits to all parties here. Um, in, in terms of um, a long-term loan, who is the beneficiary? Um, it, it really depends on on what the alternatives are. Uh, you know, we have seen, I think Chelsea have been quite spectacular at putting players on two-year loans to to clubs in Europe. Normally, where they've signed somebody, it's very quickly realised that it's not worked out. Um, They can't sell the player because he's on crazy money so that they just park him for a couple of years elsewhere and forget about him. So again, it tends to be the selling club that's the beneficiary here. Um, And also, if you've got somebody out on loan, you don't have to recognise the loss on the... Uh, if you sold him, if you, if you sold him at loss, you wouldn't have to recognise that in the accounts immediately. So it, it kicks that particular can down the road. Hmm. Okay, our next question uh, starts with a cheery hello. It's Akudinobi Kazarachi from Nigeria again. Uh, uh, hello, Akudinobi. Akudinobi says you did a fine job pronouncing my name last time. Uh, I did ask producer guy if he'd listen back and double check. The pronunciation, but he was too busy fanning himself with a wadge of five star reviews. Um, <laughs> Aku Denobi says, I'm a big fan of women's football, so I'd like to know if there's any financial reason for the UEFA Women's Champions League having to play a straight knockout tournament starting from a round of 32 when a group stage would mean more matches, more money, more publicity, more exposure, etc. That's a very good question. It is. Um, I think the reason for that is at present, the Women's Champions League has not reached a tipping point in terms of popularity. If, if you think about any football tournament, you're, you're looking at three three income streams. Um, broadcast revenues, the, the match day ticket sales, and the, the commercial revenues. Now, if, if we take a look at um, last year, um, Glasgow City, um, they they qualified for the Women's Champions League. And at one point, uh, you know, and th- there were COVID issues arising at well. At one point, they, they said, well, we cannot afford to continue in the competition. Because remember, if you have three group games, that means you've got to travel to three different venues. You've got the flight uh, cost, yeah. the accommodation cost, and all of these things. And, you know, the, the crowds are not, bringing in huge amounts of money. So actually, the clubs would be losing money each time. And it was only due to the um, generosity of a, uh, I think it's a Hearts fan called James Anderson. He he gave uh, Glasgow City, uh, I think he gave them 100 grand to say, no, you, know, you should. I, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic that a Scottish team has made this progress in the competition. Um, you know, I'm going to underwrite the costs of, of you competing for as far as you can. Um, so, so that's my view. Whereas, if you take a look at the the men's Champions League, um, whilst you know, on a personal level, I find the matches incredibly tedious. Um, they do seem to generate uh, good levels of interest from TV audiences. So, they've got the lucrative nature of the um, of the broadcast revenues. They still tend to sell out quite well. Um, well, certainly when when the hosts are Premier League clubs, yeah, um, yeah and, and you know I, I, I've seen Barcelona play at the Etihad and uh, Bayern play at uh, at Anfield and so on, and yeah, you know, they are they are quite good occasions, especially when 
when the away fans are German because they are absolutely superb. They yeah, yeah, they come to Manchester and Liverpool and uh, German fan culture is one of the things which I'm hugely in admiration of. You know, their their ability to, to get drunk um, and sing nonstop um, whilst keeping a smile on their face and, and they like our sense of humour. Yeah, um, and they also tend to tidy up after themselves as well, which I've found yes. going to games in Germany, which I really like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, so that's that's the reason. It, it's interesting because I don't think it can be that far away that tipping point, can it? Just in terms of the size of the the women's game, I would have thought. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, our last inquiry comes from Andy Pawthry, uh, and Andy says, "I have a question for Kevin." Brackets only joking. It's obviously for Kieran, but I thought I'd tickle Kevin's ego. I have no ego left, Andy. <laughs> there's nothing. There's a dry husk where my ego used to be. Um, the Australian Financial Times has a lot to answer for. <laughs> it certainly has. Is it pink, the Australian Financial Never mind. Let's not go there. Andy Palfrey. <laughs> his question is, again, it's another another different angle on a, on a, a sort of well-trodden path. Andy says, I know there are checks on potential new owners of football clubs, but could an individual acquire a club to get control of the company that owns the club or vice versa? So if Mike Ashley created a company that owns Newcastle, could he then sell the whole lot without the buyer getting the club being vetted by the Premier League? Is that a loophole? No, unfortunately not. Uh, Mike Ashley already does own a company that owns right. Newcastle United. Ah, right, okay. um, uh, well, because what the Premier League will do, um, and this is, uh, I think the legal term is lifting the veil, which which isn't as saucy as it sounds, unfortunately. Um, yeah, that takes me back to one night. No, we won't go. No, 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 um, it's not. Um, and uh, what what you do is you say, well, who is the ultimate beneficiary? Who is the ultimate owner? So, so, uh, so Newcastle as a as a football club, they are owned by Newcastle United Limited, and then we go through a you know, a, a series of companies. But ultimately, we are looking at a company called Mash Holdings. Limited, which is that uh, stands for Mike Ashley's Special Holdings, um, and he owns hundreds and hundreds of companies, including you know, a lot of the likes of Evan Cycles and the Fraser Group, and you know this and that and the other, and Sports Direct, um, and and what the what either the, the Premier League or the EFL would do is that they would try to work determine who is the ultimate person making decisions, and this appears to be. The the crux of the matter in relation to the Saudi Saudi Arabian PIF bid to acquire Newcastle is that the the, the Premier League said we can't quite work out who is in charge of the PIF and until you can give us a a person who is ultimately uh, responsible um, we are not in a position to approve the takeover. Um, now, you know, this has upset the people at PIF. This has clearly upset uh, Newcastle United fans. This has clearly upset Mike Ashley because he'd agreed a deal. Um, and, and that's why he's uh, he's got Nick DeMarco to act on his behalf to uh, try to... Uh, I think there's, there's now uh, a case between the, the Premier League and Mike Ashley to, to on dealing with this particular issue. Well, that's interesting. We'll keep an eye on that one. Very good. Uh, before we go, uh, thank you to everyone who has recently become a patron of our site via Patreon, including Nick Dunn, Steve Smith, Robert Keane, Alexander Saremba, and Ian F. We do appreciate that very much. 
Um, and if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution, go to patreon.com forward slash price of football. We'll be back on Thursday with that Scottish football special. If you have any questions for our special guest, Neil Doncaster, head of the SPFL, or if you have any questions you'd like answered on the pod, then email us on questions at priceoffootball.com and I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, have a great Easter, folks. And uh, if, if you do like the show, please please follow us on Apple Podcasts or uh, or Spotify. And if you could give us a five-star review, j- just say it's all down to producer guy. Me, me and Kevin, we've got no egos left. So yeah, we know who's in charge of this show. Other than that, look after yourselves. Yeah, I'm expecting a good review in Stooge monthly next week. Uh, <laughs> bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. Bye, son, for the